welcome to the Number 8 Wire podcast. I'm Johanna Van Els, business coach and consultant. In this series, I'll be talking to people in business who have had professional and personal challenges, how they held it together through those tough times, and what advice they have to share that may help you. At the end of the podcast, I'll be highlighting the valuable takeaways, so be sure to listen out for those. I'm talking to Mike Hart, CEO of Sierra Energy, based in California. He's been here in New Zealand with the Sir Edmund Hillary Foundation promoting his blast furnace technology. What this technology does uh, is turn waste into hydrogen and then we can then use that hydrogen as fuels for cars and planes and for creating more electricity. So I'm going to say that again so you really get it. We can actually turn our rubbish, our trash, our waste into fuel that can fly planes. I know, it's really out there, but it's actually happening. So uh, let's jump right in. Cheers. Communities with trash. Mike, I'm a big fan of yours. I've been to hear you speak twice. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited to know that in my lifetime, it will be possible to completely eliminate the need for landfills and to use our rubbish to, you know, to fly our planes, to cook my dinner, to drive my car, and, and to heat my home. Tell us how it works, Mike. Magic. Yeah. <laughs> the, only, the only logical answer I could give that's usually really concise and short. Uh, actually, it's fairly simple. What we do is we take the oldest piece of industrial technology out there, the blast furnace. The blast furnace is very well known. It's been around for hundreds of years. And what you're doing is you take a big tube, basically a big metal tube lined with refractory. And at the bottom, you blast in air. So the air goes in and reacts with um, materials that you put into a blast furnace and it used to melt the rocks and turns into iron. Um, and you're able to recover that. What we do is we get rid of the nitrogen in air. Air is 80% nitrogen. By getting rid of that and just injecting oxygen and steam, we take this very old piece of industrial technology and turn it into a very modern gasifier. And what that does is it allows you to take any form of waste, put it into the vessel, you're injecting oxygen and it reacts with the carbon that's in the waste. So you don't need okay. external energy. It's the carbon in the waste itself drives the reaction. The reaction is 2200 degrees Celsius. That's twice the temperature at the core of a volcano. So incredibly hot. At that temperature, everything breaks down molecularly. And so what you end up with is from this black bag of rubbish that's got everything in it. It breaks down the metal that's in there melts, glass melts. Anything like that melts and you're able to recover as a separate stream. So you can recover everything that's in the waste. Those mixed plastics that people have such a hard time sorting out, they break down molecularly and they turn into carbon monoxide, CO, and hydrogen, H2. Both of them very potent fuels. So you can take those and turn them into either chemicals or fuels or energy. There, there was one other thing that you mentioned. There is, um, the, there's like a leftover slag. Liquid metals and liquid stone. And so what that does is a blast furnace is designed to take rocks basically and melt them. Well, you're doing that with the garbage. So things that are in your waste that are inorganic solids, like metals and glasses and things like that, they melt. 
they then pour out and they can be separated by specific gravity. So that means you're able to recover all of the metal that's in your waste, not just the bits that you remember to pick out. It's whatever else was embedded in that waste you forgot or weren't able to recover economically. We get it all. It pours out as a liquid, so we're able to capture it. And anything else like glass, ceramics, things like that, things that were in your waste stream that were inorganic solids come out as a liquid, which we then run through a water bath and basically make rocks. You can then recover and reuse. This hard solids, they actually have monetary value as well? Yeah, there, there's two different things. One, the metals have tremendous value. Obviously, you can then separate those at a refractor and actually turn them into the underlying copper, gold, you know, uh, any, any other iron, whatever metal was in your waste stream. You recover it all and are able to put that back into the economy. On the, the, the inorganic solids, that rock that I was talking about, there are two pathways for it. One, the pathway that we currently build into our business model is simply using it as rock. And that is that it, you would use it as a, a, a base rock or a road base. Like when you're, you're laying a road, you need rocks and such to go into it. So very low value, yeah. but it is a way to at least put it back into use. The second alternative, which is more interesting, is that there is a thing that they do with blast furnace slag, which is what this is, called ground granulated blast furnace slag. Totally rolls off the tongue. But yeah. that particular product is used as a cement replacement. Okay. And so, for example, in the San Francisco Bay Area, the Bay Bridge that they, they put together, 50% of it was ground granulated blast furnace slag, which they used to reduce their carbon footprint to replace cement being used in the process. So it is possible that we may find that is ultimately the best market for that rock that's being recovered from the process. It's obviously worth significantly more as a cement replacement, but we haven't done, we haven't done it yet. We haven't actually gone out and put this into the marketplace, found out whether or not it's a suitable replacement or not. But it certainly is a really exciting potential thing to do with that material. I'm grateful to you, Mike. I'm really grateful that you've come up with something that isn't about digging a hole in the ground and extracting something. Take us back a little bit to when you first started. Where did the idea first come from? And, and then how did you then choose that as a mission for yourself? Well, for starters, um, I actually, back in 2001, um, I, I have a number of railroads in California. And um, we have about 24 locomotives. And I was looking for a way to fuel my locomotives with something other than diesel. And so we became actually the first railroad in the world to run on 100% biodiesel. Wow. Um, and so we started using that. I said, man, we've, we've solved the environmental problem for railroads. Friends of mine who are really good environmentalists were saying, no, you haven't. They said biodiesel has a number of problems. One is that you're taking a food crop, soybeans mostly, and deesterifying it and turning it into fuel. They said, that may not be the best environmental solution for creating fuels. You gotta do better. <laughs> so we started looking for solutions and worked with the University of California at Davis, which is where we're based, and hit upon the idea of garbage. Garbage, when you throw it into a hole in the ground, one ton of garbage makes 6.2 tons of greenhouse gas. Sounds wow. crazy, but it actually, yeah. The reason why is what it's doing is it's making methane. And methane is 86 times worse than carbon dioxide as wow. far as a greenhouse gas. 
So you're making 6.2 tons of CO2 equivalent when you're throwing garbage into a landfill. And so we realized that if we took that trash and rather than letting it go to a landfill and create that methane with all of these very bad negative yeah. environmental consequences, if we took that instead, put it through our process and turned it into synthesis gas, which we could then turn into, among many other things, diesel. So we can make a diesel fuel that's 20 times cleaner than the California fuel standard, which is currently the highest in the world. So taking that approach became very exciting. And quite frankly, it sort of took over my life um, when I realized this became possible. We've spent many, many years since then improving the design, coming up with better and better iterations, building pilot facilities, running those, building larger and larger facilities. Um, with partners such as the U.S. Army and the California Energy Commission in building these larger facilities, demonstrating that it works, and now building a, a commercial facility down in Monterey, California. How did you bring other investors on board? So given that this is a series for people who, you know, have been holding it together through tough times, and I'm sure you've seen them yourself, what, how did you get your first person on board? I know just for listeners, they need to know that Richard Branson's behind you now, Bill Gates, um, Jeff Bezos, uh, Zuckerberg, is he a supporter as well? Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. so, you know, you need to be at a certain level to bring those guys on. So how did that start for you, that financial journey or that getting people to financially invest in your idea? Sure. So, but let, let me be very clear. Those, those, yeah. those gentlemen you mentioned, we don't hang out and have drinks regularly or anything. Okay. Uh, these are, these are, these are very disciplined investors and they work um, as a group looking for ways to try and impact climate change. And they work through a group called Breakthrough Energy Ventures, um, which okay. is the group that we actually worked with. Um, they came on actually last year in July of 2019. Up until then, we were on our own. And so during those years in between, what we did um, is we actually um, were to take all of the um, the money that we would make as a railroad. Um, so everything we made running, yeah, we have little trains, you know, we, we'd run tourist trains, we'd run small little freight trains and things like that. Mm -hmm. But we would take whatever money we made each month and we would put it into our research efforts with the energy company. And so basically, we haven't made a profit since 2003 <laughs> um, by putting every cent we make, um, you know, just it's, it's been everything. We've, we've done everything. I mean, we've put everything into this. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been the focus of our company for decades, trying to find a way to take this idea, take the technology, building it at a larger and larger scale until we had proof. Because to bring in investors like the folks you've mentioned, as well as some other really great companies, we've got Cox, um, which is one of the largest companies, private held, privately held companies in the world, BNP Paribas, uh, which is, I believe, the largest bank. So we have all uh, Twinum out of Australia, uh, the March Fund um, out of Hong Kong. Um, so we have, and uh, um, Formica out of Sweden. So we have a group of investors, but to get people like that, into our organization as investors, yeah. they need to see proof. And so yeah. that's what we had to do is we actually had to build it at a sufficient scale, run it so they could see that and go, wow, this can work. This is actually something that can go global. The other thing that they wanted to see 
is it's not just me as the only customer, this guy with this some locomotives trying to, trying to do something better environmentally. Yeah. So what we were able to show them is that as of last year, we had over 8,000 requests from around the world by different communities and businesses that would like to deploy our technology in their communities as a way to reduce the amount of waste they throw away and reduce their carbon footprint. Yeah, so that's, uh, to me, if I was going to wrap short words around that, you actually had a proof of business idea and a proof yeah, of support we, we, we for we your had business to do that idea. Ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and by the way, I, I, I can't overemphasize the fact that, you know, this, this, this isn't something we, we were able to just bang up and put in our backyard. We, we worked with the U.S. Army, and they operated a thing called the Renewable Energy Testing Center. Um, the U.S. military has been very, very focused on trying to find alternative energy sources mm. rather than being dependent on fossil fuels. Um, and so when they saw this as an opportunity, they stepped up and said, all right, come on out to our facility and prove it. And so they, we went all the way from something about the size of a coffee can, which was the first one we were able to build. No way. Uh, they oh, went yeah. from there. Yeah, about that big. And we built through progressively larger and larger systems as our organization began to grow working with different researchers and scientists that were able to help us develop the rest of the technology as we went. So it really was through the military's testing program and then the California Energy Commission stepping in and saying, we want to see this operating and actually make diesel, which is what we had said we wanted to do in the first place. So that went all the way through July of last year. And then we had Breakthrough Energy Ventures and those investors that you mentioned, having them step in last year to now take us and go global. And okay. so we started looking for where are we going next? Okay, okay. So that's a really clear mission statement, actually. Where am I going next? So have you got a board of people around you? Who gives you some, you know, who keeps you going? Keeps you focused? Keeps... Yeah, well, I mean, for, for starters, we have a great team. We've, we've got about three dozen people in our company. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the scientists, the engineers, uh, the, the people that have really you know, held this business together over the years. You know, it's been a very small team over the years, but recently we've been ramping up to operate our facility more and more, um, but bringing in those additional people have been great. Um, we have a, a board of directors, uh, which now is mostly made up of our investors, um, but we really have a fantastic board of advisors, uh, Dr. Nicole Biggert. Um, she has been fantastic in putting together and running that board of advisors as far as bringing in people from you know, all walks of, of, of you know, all walks of life, different re parts of the um, different parts, uh, parts of uh, business, academia, um, yeah. and science of giving us really good um, information and helping guide our decisions throughout this process. Okay. Um, a question, another question I've got, looking back, what would you avoid doing? If you could like do it well, over, what would you avoid doing? You know, I actually would not have tried to do it small from the start. I, I took the approach in the very beginning that, man, venture capitalists are hard. They're, 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 you know, you see all the horrible things you ever hear about venture capital or trying to raise venture capital. It's all true. Uh, <laughs> no, but the, 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 no, it's, it's very difficult because, mm. you know, you have this passion, you have this mission, this thing you want to do. They need to, they're there to make money. They're, they're there to, you know, there are things, there are goals and projects that they have to accomplish. So you're, you're, you're not necessarily on the same page at the outset. Yeah. But I decided to avoid that for, 
from the beginning. And so we went on a very low budget from the very beginning. And what that did was that most entrepreneurs that'll start up usually make this mistake. They think, okay, well, you know, it's only, I'm, I'm only running with a few people. So my burn rate is very small. So I can last longer that way. Well, the problem is, is that when you add up the burn rate year after year, you're spending millions and millions of dollars, certainly in our case. We were. Okay. Um, not all at once, but a little bit at a time for years. What we should have done, and if I had the, uh, the, the do-over button handy, um, I would have simply raised all the money we needed at the outset and simply said, look, we need to build the big thing. It's okay if we bring in venture capitalists. It's okay if we bring in people that... You know, they want to get a great rate of return or whatever, but I would have saved time and time is really more valuable than money in so many ways. Yeah. So yes, we conserved more equity in our business by doing it ourselves for many years and taking the bulk of the risk, but we spent time. The other thing that most people don't realize is that when you're building uh, novel technologies, um, a lot of times you have a problem about single point of failure. And that is that you have this, this big contraption, you know, lots of parts and generators and, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's a complex system. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that if a piece fails, we're, we were poor company. I mean, you're desperately poor for years, you know, we're struggling every month. How are we going to cover mm-hmm. this? How are we going to pay for that? So we cut corners. We bought the, you know, there, there are three price ranges, you know, there's, there's cheap, there's lab scale, and then there's industrial. Industrial costs 10 times as much. So we buy lab scale. So we buy relatively inexpensive components. Well, when you're trying to run that system and that component that costs you $2,000 instead of the $20,000 part, you know, you're saying, hey, I saved $18,000. But when your operating cost is $700,000 a month and that component fails and it takes two months to replace it, that $18,000 savings just cost you $1.4 million. Yeah. Yeah, totally see that a lot. And, and, and it's, it's purely my own ignorance is what, what caused all of this, is that we were trying to keep our costs down. We just didn't have the money. But in retrospect, I should have done whatever it took at the beginning to raise an adequate amount of money to build the big system right at the start and do it the best possible components from the outset. Yeah. So that's what I would have done if I had it to do over. Okay, that's, that's really good advice. There's a part of me that says people need to make sure that they've got a really great business idea before they throw everything into it as well. And I think that's why I asked you, who's advising you? It's not an echo chamber. It's actually customers or potential customers who are saying. 8,000 of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we have uh, just, just from our, um, you know, we end up with constant feedback, constant dialogues and discussions with customers from all over the world, about 150 countries at this point. And so, we have a discussion, you know, a customer explains, oh, well, you know, we have a problem here in our country where we need to make methanol. And can we use your synthesis gas to make methanol? It's like, wow, I hadn't thought about that. And so we learn in each of these discussions about other markets we may not have considered or people trying to throw things away that we would have never considered as mm-hmm. a waste stream. But mm-hmm. as we understand it, it expands the opportunities for us to dispose of waste and the number of things that you can take that waste and turn it into. Yeah. So over the years, huge amount of feedback has been wonderful, really yeah. directing us 
and that's where the size of the system that we're going to market with is really come from is feedback from customers have you got a like a really good business ninja move that you would recommend to starters out there you know you know it's funny i one of the most trite little uh, what, what do they call them these little little uh business ideas that every business person will always tell you when they ask and they say hire the best people and they always say that you just roll your eyes and going if i had the money i would but I don't. <laughs> we're going to get the people we've got there's a reason they say that it's true it, it truly is because if you spend uh, a huge amount of investment if you invest your time in somebody if you spend years trying to get them you know up to speed and they're just not the right people or they don't have the capacity or it's not their thing you waste a lot of time and it slows you down I would have to say that of all of the things that I've learned is that time is the most valuable asset and anything you can do to shorten that time is important. And one thing that I have always done is I've always taken people that may not be at the, you know, the most expensive candidate at the, you know, in the early days that we would get some, oh, well, we'll train them. We'll, we'll, we'll help them. We'll get yeah. them through this and such, mm -hmm. but you invest years and sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. And we've got some great people that we've brought up with us over the years. But if we had gotten the person with the best experience, whoever that person might be, we would have saved years had we done that at the outset. So I'm now standing at a point looking back going, wow, okay, well, now that we've done this, how could I have shortened that pathway? Raised more money, hired people with tremendously more experience. And that's really what you're hiring is you're hiring the experience of somebody who's been there before, been there, done that, and paid the price. Yeah, going back to what you're saying about, you know, time actually being your scarce, your scarcest resource when you're wanting to get something happening, and this is the way you shorten time. So that's really given me something to think about because I'm a little bit on how you can, um, you can train skills. You can, you know, hire the aptitude, train skills, but you're saying. Actually, I don't have the time for that. And there's real value in your example there. I have to say that, yeah. well, I apologize, but just let me add one bit to that. And yeah. that is that we have been very, very lucky. I'd love to say it's all brilliance and all that sort of stuff. No, it's just luck. Because the problem about taking too much time to do something is that you may be looking at a market opportunity. And by the time you finally getting around to, you've got it sorted out, you're ready to go, you find out the market opportunity is gone. And so that's the reason why time's so important. We had a, a goal as a company about, um, you know, greenhouse gas has been something that I care about. That's the reason why I got involved in this. Mm -hmm. And in the early days, all of our economics were based on very high fuel costs because the assumption was is that we would be able to replace very expensive fuel. If that had been the driving factor for our thing, all these years that have gone by, fuel prices are dang near free. And so that driving assumption is no longer there. Mm -hmm. Fuel mm -hmm. matters, but it's nowhere near that, that point. The fact we were making carbon negative fuel and reducing greenhouse gas that wasn't a big deal at the start for most investors. Most of the people we were talking to at the outset, it's like, why? Well, now that's cool. <laughs> now yeah. the market, we were fortunate in that the world has woken up to the fact that, wow, methane is a real problem and greenhouse gas is something we need to address. So we're not here to save money on fuel, although we do. The real reason we're here now 
is that we can clean up the, the, the climate. And there's a real advantage to doing that. That's not luck, Mark. That's real sharp foresight. It's, it's the reason we were there is because that's what we cared about. And so it's very fortunate that the two coincide right now. Yeah, yeah, really true. I just, I have to ask about your relationship with Elon Musk. Uh, we have disagreed at times. Um, he is 10 times smarter and 10 times better looking than I am. I accept that. And also probably about a hundred times, a hundred thousand times richer. I'm not sure, but it's a bunch. <laughs> so I, I have to, <laughs> I have to, to, to concede the fact that Elon is, a, is an absolutely brilliant guy. And I, I have nothing but respect for him. However, we have disagreed in the past. Um, most notably, um, his position has been that uh, the idea of using hydrogen to make electricity, which is what we believe people should be doing, um, is rubbish. He thinks it's a terrible idea. And he believes that the battery is the right solution, using solar to charge the battery. And I, again, there's absolutely nothing I disagree with him about that being a fantastic pathway. But I believe that on his best day if you disregard everything that went in to making a photovoltaic panel and a battery you know just ignore all the environmental costs your best situation is you make a hundred percent of the power from your solar cell you turn it into your you put it in your battery and you go drive off your your tesla to work you you, you created no emission that's a good day and that's elon musk's best day in our case you take trash that would have gone into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You prevent it from going into the atmosphere. And when you to put that hydrogen that you create into your fuel cell powered vehicle and go to work, you just took tons of pollution out of the atmosphere. So your best day is far better than his best possible day. So yes, he's correct that batteries certainly are going to be a huge part of our future. And solar, I can't say enough good things about solar. However, Hydrogen and fuel cells are the rest of the answer. Because while the world is seeing an explosion, it's a tremendous explosion in the use of solar, it's making a tiny, tiny dent in the total amount of fossil fuel that the world is consuming. If we're really going to move the needle, if we're really going to reduce global greenhouse gas, we need to start looking at additional alternatives. And hydrogen, in my opinion, is the right answer. That's a fast way to reduce a huge amount of that transportation fuel requirement. Yeah, I'm, I'm right with you there. I've got to ask you about Mike Moore's, um, his latest doco that's being taken down. I didn't get the chance to see it. Did you see it at all? Planet of the Humans? Yeah. I have. Oh, yeah. Um, I saw it when it first came out. Um, it's, I, I, unfortunately, I know quite a few people that are in that video. Um, I, I'll say that he is right on from the perspective that He's calling attention to a lot of people that claim, uh, a, lot, a lot of very wealthy people that claim that, um, oh, I'm doing a good thing for the planet because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm changing X to Y. Well, with biomass, for example, there's, there's mm -hmm. a huge number of people in the biomass space that are saying, oh, yeah, well, this is good for the planet. And then you look at these people chainsawing down a forest and feeding it into things to make a fuel that you put more diesel into making the fuel than you would have had if you just drove it around mm -hmm. in diesel in the first place. It's hard to watch. Yeah. You know, you watch that, and you're just like, wow, that's just, it doesn't feel good, I guess, the best way of putting it. I, I, I get the sentiment, but you look at mass solar, for example, the, you know, mass solar collectors, some of these, like the Ivanpah facility, and some of these things are, they're an environmental blight. 
If you go anywhere near there, there's just this blinding light, all the thousands of mass mirrors concentrated on this gadget up there making heat and desert tortoises being made extinct in that area. And I've it, driven past that. Yeah, I've driven past that. It's, it's just weird. And I, I guess I, I understand that there are probably some really good environmentalists involved at the outset of the thing, but eventually it got turned into a business. And eventually that business may not have been the best possible thing for the environment. So I am very content where our company is. And that is we don't, we don't want people to chop down anything uh, to feed our system. We want them to stop throwing things into landfills and stop making greenhouse gas. So that's the position that we're taking. And I think even if our technology did nothing more than just take that waste and turn it into nothing, I don't know, somehow made it just vanish and it didn't go into the landfill, it didn't go into the water tables, you know, it didn't leach down. Mm -hmm. If we were able to stop all of that, if the only thing we did, I would consider a success. But the fact we can also then make fuels that are renewable and allow you to offset fossil fuels is a double win. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I know that um, after listening to you speak the second, uh, the first time, I went crazy on the internet and found that Hyundai had produced a hydrogen cell technology car, and I was like, wow. Yep. Um, I know that Shell, uh, Z Energy in New Zealand, are considering yep. putting um, Bowser's, a hydrogen cell, a hydrogen Bowser's in their um, petrol stations across the country. Yep. Uh, I also know that the Auckland Port have a goal to be running on um, hydrogen. Uh, theirs is a little bit different where they'll be extracting it from the seawater. That's their plan that I read online that may have changed. So that's I a don't very, know. very ambitious. That's a very ambitious plan. Um, the, 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 I'm very familiar with efforts by, for example, the U.S. Navy and such to extract hydrogen from, from seawater. Um, it obviously makes tremendous sense. So, I mean, man, if somebody can do that, that's going to be phenomenal. Generally, though, it's the, the environmental way of doing that is a lot of solar used to break okay. down seawater and create hydrogen. Certainly can be done. It's just very, very capital intensive. So you can do it if you've got a very large checkbook, but it's worth doing. In our case, hydrogen becomes a byproduct. In U.S. dollars, um, you can make uh, a kilogram of hydrogen using our process for 86 cents US. Um, that works wow. out to being just, that's about two point, uh, well, it's a kilogram of hydrogen. So I don't know how you guys convert that to liters, yeah, but sure. um, in the US, one kilogram of hydrogen is worth about two and a half gallons of gasoline's worth of energy in a hydrogen fueled vehicle. Yeah. So that means you're looking at something costing under 40 cents yeah. per gallon equivalent with zero, zero emissions and carbon negative. Yeah, so that would be... From weight. Just, yeah, yeah, I know, like 60 cents, that's like 60 cents for six, six to seven litres of yeah. petrol in New Zealand uh, or gas. Yeah, Which you're taking emissions out of the air. That's the most important part, yeah. And... Um, just from the waste in New Zealand, the amount of waste that's currently produced in New Zealand, if you were to take that using our process to turn that into just hydrogen, let's just say that was your only goal, you would create as much hydrogen, renewable hydrogen, as New Zealand imports in diesel every day. So that means every day you could offset all of your foreign imports of diesel 
and turn it into renewable hydrogen. So it's a, a phenomenal opportunity. And the, yeah. the exciting thing is, is that where people make garbage and the amount that they create yeah. perfectly coincides with where they need fuel and where they consume it. And so little town makes a little trash and consumes a little fuel. And so that means the amount of gasification required our systems very precisely in communities based on the demand. And so you would be able to create an entire hydrogen infrastructure for the nation of New Zealand essentially for free. Because if you simply built these as a way to get rid of the methane emissions coming out of the landfills all over New Zealand, if each community put one of our gas fires there, just the tip fee, just the cost of getting rid of waste right now, yeah. pays for the entire cost of the system. So just disposing of it, you're good. This is a no-brainer. This well, is a no-brainer. If I had the money, man, I'd be writing you a check. I'd be building one. Please don't understand. I mean, uh, throughout New Zealand, we've met with uh, dozens of communities. Uh, Iwi, we've, we've met with government officials. We've met with nothing but really great support from throughout New Zealand. And it's the reason why, in for me personally, it's the first country out of the United States that I would like to go to after we build, you know, obviously we have a whole development plan for the United States because that's where we, we are. Yeah. Um, but we had a discussion with our board of directors about, you know, where can we go next? Where do we go outside of the United States? Because we obviously have to begin a long process of finding the right partners mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. those countries and beginning to mm -hmm. understand how we might fit. And um, after a lot of discussion, we agreed that New Zealand is absolutely the right place to go. So yeah. um, welcome. It, uh, so I'm obviously a huge fan and thank, thanks to the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, um, I've been given the opportunity, my fiance and I've been given the opportunity to, to really spend time in New Zealand. We've probably spent six months there now, um, getting to know the people and the places and I, I couldn't be happier with it. I absolutely love New Zealand. You've opened my eyes and I just want, from right from the beginning of starting this podcast series, I wanted to speak to you because your message is bang on. And, uh, you know, I'm a great supporter. I've, I've put aside my buying an electric vehicle and I'm going to save up. And my first ex-petrol is going to be hydrogen cell technology because it's just fantastic. Oh, just makes sense. Um, it's it's going to be fantastic. Yeah. Mike, can you just uh, give a shout out to your website? Yeah. Um, so the best place to find out more about our country, our company is www.sierraenergy.com. And one interesting feature on our website, in addition, it's a very comprehensive website. It's not just the usual corporate thing. We have mm -hmm. thousands of pages of information about the technology, what's involved. There's huge questions answered section. But there's also an online calculator on there. It says calculate yeah. the value of yeah. your waste. And we have thousands of communities around the world that also use that to plug it in and figure out whether or not it makes economic sense. Because it may not in some communities, but people can say, all right, it's 50 metric tons per day of waste at so many cents per kilowatt hour, does this work? And it'll tell you, it gives you a complete business plan. We have full open economics. We share all of our information through that. Yeah. It gives you a complete report. Yeah, I think uh, that's one of the other things that when I was following up after I first heard you and I went onto your website and I was like, whoa, finally, here's a website where someone's coming at it from the consumer, from the client point of view. And I was able to get my questions answered because I was like, here I am in Christchurch, there's 400, maybe 450,000 people here. What's it going to take 
to be able to create a circular economy with one of these um, these gas burners, check out the website because it's going to answer so, all the questions that you've got. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's funny. In, in a place like Christchurch, the, the, the thing to keep in mind, by the way, I absolutely love uh, Christchurch, but, but one of the things that, that I absolutely love about it is that they've already embraced an organics recycling program there. Um, that's a key thing. If, if your community can do something better to make soils, for example, from your organics and put it back into the environment, that's a fantastic thing. Anything you pull out of the waste stream makes it easier for us to take care of the rest. And so working with communities that are forward-looking and that already are embracing mm -hmm. a really or aggressive recycling approach, particularly with organics, those are the communities we want to be. We're a part of a solution. We see ourselves as, you know, we're the goalie. You know, everything else, the people, the rest of the team take whatever they can. We make sure that we get the last bit. And that's what our job is. Mm, I'd say you're more of a striker. <laughs> going, <laughs> going for that goalie shot, you know, yeah. winning it. Um, hey, thanks, Mike. I really appreciate your time and coming on board. And I know uh, in the States, it's been a really big time lately over the last few days. It's something we're really conscious of. Um, I yeah. miss New Zealand a lot right now. <laughs> yeah, I tell you what, you should have stayed here during COVID instead of, run, instead of running back over there. <laughs> I wish I had. Uh, yeah. Oh, well. It's challenging times here. Yeah. Hey, enjoy your summer, Mike. Thanks so much. Um, and I look Thank forward to much. updates. Oh, I really enjoyed that talk with Mike. I'm sure you could tell. One of the things that really resonated for me was the value of time. He was really, really sharp about that point. It's your most limited resource. You cannot buy more of it. And a day spent is a day gone. So Mike's advice was go as big as you can, as quickly as you can. I thought that was a little bit out there, but I understood his reasoning. Why do you want to do it that way? Takeaway number one, you want to get ahead of the competition and dominate the market as quickly as you can. Keep the competition out. Number two, the market can change and you've lost years of profitability and opportunity because you've chosen to play it small for most of that time. So how do you go big? This is what Mike would do differently. He would raise all the money he needed right up front as soon as possible. His advice was be prepared to give up some of your ownership to reach scale quicker. And then with that extra money, employ the best people for the job. They may cost a little more, but they will get you to your goal faster. And two, with that extra money, lower your risk by buying the best parts and products. They will often save you time and money in the long run. So that was what Mike recommended to everybody else out there. Just want to say take care and thanks again for listening. Thanks for joining us this week at Number 8 Wire. I am Johanna Van Os, business coach and consultant. Please subscribe, it's free. That way you'll never miss an episode and together we'll be able to help more people. can also contact me through the Facebook page Number 8 Wire Podcasts. See ya.